This episode of the Post-Christianity Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. In this book, Glenn Scrivener writes about the Christian values that underpin our Western society, whether we realize it or not. This is a book for both believers and skeptics, giving Christians confidence to be open about their faith and showing non-Christians the ways in which the message of Jesus makes sense of their most cherished beliefs. And there's even a free small group kit available at The Good Book Company. Visit thegoodbook.com slash postpodcast to find this book and more resources that will help you engage with the culture in a thoughtful and biblical way. And use code POST at checkout to receive 25% off. That's thegoodbook.com slash postpodcast. Our worldview, our, our metaphysics is pagan, yeah. but actually our moral fervor and logic is ultimately yeah. Protestant and at least Christian. So we're going to fuse the two together and come up with the UN Declaration of Human Rights and many other things which, of course, are not ultimately grounded in the materialist premises that the people who wrote them yes. mainly hold. Hello and welcome to Post-Christianity. My name is Glenn Scrivener. And I'm Andrew Wilson. Uh, together we're thinking about our cultural moment in historical uh, context and we're trying to figure out how we got here and what we do now yes. uh, in our cultural moment, as people are, are want to say. Um, in our first episode, we did a whistle-stop tour through the history of the world, and uh, we wound up in the year 1776. Who would have thought? Um, <laughs> uh, because you've written a wonderful book called Remaking Our World. Is it how 1776... Created the post-Christian West. Created the post-Christian West. And uh, we had a look in our first episode about uh, that famous edit that Benjamin Franklin did on Thomas Jefferson, uh, where Thomas Jefferson says, okay, we hold these truths to be self-evident, but he didn't say that. He said, we hold these truths to be uh, sacred and undeniable. Tom, uh, Benjamin Franklin says, no, that they are self-evident. And it's a wonderful picture of the way in which uh, Christian ideals and profoundly Christian truths have been kind of anonymized and universalized. Yes. To the point where they become invisible to us, and we hold these truths to be self-evident when actually they're anything but. But yeah. they are the, the product of, of kind of a, a Christianization in the West. So my first question to you, Andrew, is: Are you saying that the founding of America is in fact a post-Christian founding in the sense that we're talking about it? I was bound to lose us most of our listeners in America, <laughs> but I think in many ways, yes. I mean, I I think. I don't think it's as much of an innovation as that makes it sound. I mean, I do think I've, I'd used the language in a previous episode of Protestant paganism, yes. and I think the Declaration of Independence is actually a very good example of that because it, it, it's and actually even the way it was designed is a kind of combination of very deistic or unitarian and quite heretical Christians or would-be Christians, but a lot of deists really, mingled with actually a very strong Protestant uh, dissenting impulse, um, Congregationalists, Baptists and the like, and Presbyterians. And the, and the two come together to make the declaration. And I do think that in a sense it is assuming a lot of Christian ideas at the same time as saying these are now standard and we're going to move beyond and we are explicitly not going to look for, not just in the state, but in the kind of society we build, look for explicitly religious ideas to be at the heart of it in, in a way that we recognize, acknowledge and, and shape society around. Instead, we can say we can assume these things and we will put them there. I don't think it's as much of the, the, the key innovation in a sense is probably the Protestant Reformation. And in a way, when you as soon as you get the Protestant Reformation, you're probably going to end up with, in the end, a society that has to 
if they decide they don't want to be fighting all the time about religion, then you have to have some way of forming a, a would-be neutral space. And of course, it's not neutral, but that's the attempt. And it's a probably a more resilient attempt to do it in America than there has been in there certainly was in Europe at the time, and uh, and it's lasted a long time, so it's been very influential. But yes, I do think that in a sense that was a a certainly post Christendom move, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's obviously mm-hmm. got huge implications for not just America but the rest of the world ever since. And there are other trajectories going on in the founding uh, that you point to in your book in in terms of there's this the framers of the Declaration of Independence, and so we're at that stage thinking more of your Thomas Jeffersons and your Benjamin Franklins and your perhaps your Thomas Paines yeah. as well on that side. And then there's the sort of the framers of the Constitution, which are more like your John Adams and who, who else would be sort of over on that well, side. So I think it's actually more that you've got both of these emphases in both. I think certainly yeah. that in terms of the rhetoric and the prose mm. is obviously the Declaration is very shaped by Jefferson, but and 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 it, and it's sort of its radical tenor mm. is shaped by Jefferson. Jefferson and Payne in particular, but actually all of the, the founders on both sides. You've got Adams and Washington and John Hancock on the one side and mm. um, and obviously Jefferson Payne and, and kind of Franklin. Franklin's a bit more mediating, but, but you've got these two threads, but you've got a quite a sort of radical, we need to level everybody out, everyone in society is equal. Of course, they never lived it out, many of them with respect to slavery, but you have that quite strong thread. Um, which dominates the language of the Declaration. Mm-hmm. This is all all are created equal sort of thing. And then in the Constitution, you have well, how now do you design a government? And you have a more a more of a sense not not primarily of hierarchy, but the, the the idea of the separation of powers means that we're designing a state such that what the people all want is not the only thing we factor in. We have to balance what the mob wants, if you like, democracy in its purest form, with other requirements about how is the how is the executive, the legislative, the judiciary. They're ways of trying to mediate and, and offset the power of unvarnished democracy. So the declaration is this quite sort of radical, we're all equal, everyone's voice counts the same mm-hmm. because we're trying to get rid of the Brits. Mm. But it only takes, you know, 11, 12, 13 years, and then you go and trying to design a state, and you realise, oh, hang on, if we design a state as if we are all equal and everything, how on earth do you build a government? How on earth do you balance the the power of sort of mob rule and the worst of demagoguery? So a lot of the founding fathers are pretty anti-democracy. They're very frightened by the idea. They think it's terrible. And that creative tension obviously is still, in a way, being played out in America today, like tell, how tell much us of this some, is just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us some more about about you know you've got the democratizing influence on the yeah. I mean, I, well, I think you get it. You get it. Obviously, the it's well expressed. If you've seen Hamilton, it's well expressed there. That you you have this quite strong dialectic between, and it happens a lot in the 1790s. It really kicks off. Um, but you've got some people saying, no, we've got to end up following what the people want, and really, they're, what they're worried about is you've got to going to have Washington's going to become a king. That's what mm, they're worried mm. about. On the other hand, you've got people saying from the more sort of um, uh, sort of hierarchical and let's make sure we get the right kind of balance in our state, people, particularly John Adams, but many others. And what they're saying is, no, we, we've got the opposite problem, which is this is all going to just democracy run amok. But if you see that and fast forward it through 200 years, you can see those impulses at work mm-hmm. in culture wars to this day, to be honest. You, and in some ways, the 1790s, the massive pamphlet wars were uh, a form of culture war. Um, um, we didn't use the language then. And I think you're still seeing the same thing play through now, where you, you have to balance the requirements of how much are we looking forward, how much are we looking back, how much are we trying to ensure that we are stable and resilient and unlikely to collapse in on the, under the weight of our own ideals, mm-hmm. and how much do we need to be principled and passionate for the, the for the values that we hold sacred. And that tension is being played out every election. It's not like there's right. a pure 
uh, instantiation of both of those on either side of the political aisle. Right. But it's that those values of, if you like, the sort of democracy, but, uh, uh, you know, dangerous demagoguery and populism at one end, mm-hmm. and the sort of more hierarchical solidity, stability, but at the risk of preserving the current structures of privilege on the other side, um, you, you kind of, yeah, what English people would have called Whigs at the time, yes. um, doing battle with radicals. And, and of course, they didn't really have, in the same way that, that we do, the sort of Whig versus Tory or Liberal versus Tory, that, that it, sort of the radical tradition was stronger in their context. And of course, they didn't live it through because in many, most of those founders who were expressing radical ideas were still very morally convicted on an issue like slavery and didn't, famously Jefferson, but many others, didn't actually live that way in a consistent way because they were really saying we hold all white people to be equal we hold all landowners to be equal but but it but even so the language they embedded in these founding documents were always going to provide a creative tension and so actually almost every time someone says but the founders said yes they're kind of right even though they're expressing things that are contradictory to each (laughs) other because the founders didn't not only didn't agree but they were operating from different assumptions about the good and about god and about the nature of history and progress and sin yes which is a big you know, how sinful do you think people are? How do you build right. a state if everyone's a rotten sinner? How optimistic and naive are you in your, in your you know, how, what do you think about the French Revolution? Some of them are like, this is absolutely terrible. This is what I was afraid of. Yes, this is actually pretty great. Yes. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of tensions that, that are still being played out. Yeah. In, um, you know, Trump versus Biden or whatever it might be. Right. Right. And so we've got these tensions that you name and the, and the tension between uh, a kind of a, a Christian founding and a post-Christian founding already happening. And the other tension that we're thinking about which is slavery yeah right there you know here's thomas jefferson owning 600 slaves as he writes the declaration of independence um how is slavery playing out on either side of the atlantic so britain at in that in the late 18th century um obviously slavery has been around since forever and it begins to be challenged. And the, the, the first sort of strident abolitionist writers are writing sort of late 17th into the 18th centuries. Initially, it's Quakers. It's sort of mm-hmm. sectarian Christian groups who are not part of the established church. And it quite quickly spreads. And you end up with quite a strong dissenting abolitionist tradition quite early. And then it goes mainstream, really. It, I mean, people would debate exactly. But in Britain, which is probably the first, uh, first and most influential country to go, we are, we're going to push heavier in that direction. You've sort of got 1760s and 1770s through to obviously abolition of the slave trade comes in in 1807 and then uh, uh, slavery overall uh, in the early 1830s. And, and the, but that tradition is coming through. So you have people like Granville Sharp and then John Wesley. And they're very significant men in their own standing of, mm. of in church influence, but it, it is reaching the culture more widely. And of course, the, through the influence of Methodism and popular evangelicalism, the influence of the church is much larger in that sense, uh, of the dissenting church is much larger than it would be in Britain today. Mm. So you have that strong momentum in, in Britain. It gets coupled and the timing comes in. Obviously, the European Enlightenment is giving other reasons to oppose slavery in within the French radical intellectual tradition. And so you get these unlikely bedfellows, um, which, of course, do also exist in the States. It's just that in the States, there's so much it's so much more at stake for them right. and or so much more at stake for the white, powerful folk who are, who are basically running the country and writing all these documents that they Generally, there's a lot of well. Of course, this would be better if it wasn't here, but it is, and you know, and, and then you initially get that, 
and then of course later as people realized our whole livelihood might be at stake here it, the you know things like you know the cotton gin and you know these these sort of technologies make you think we can make a lot of money out of this and they begin to celebrate slavery rather than just apologize for it and of course that becomes a huge explosion in in the US in the 19 in the 1860s and that's not just so effectively every nation's been scarred by a history on slavery all european nations have but because in the states it was it was on it was on the land and it was abolished much later than it was in in most of western europe it became much more of a moral stain and, and with moral implications that continue today. They still do in Britain as well. They still do in other European nations, but I think without a lot of the sort of the sense of presentness, it, it feels more distant. And obviously Western European nations didn't process post-slavery in the same way either. So there wasn't the, the equivalent of a Jim Crow or whatever, mm-hmm. that sort of just the horrible history of lynchings and that sort of thing is, is far, far rare. It's not unknown in Western Europe, but it's just dramatically less than it was in the US. So you, these two sides of the Atlantic head down quite different paths. I don't think ultimately that's because of the tension I'm talking about in the Declaration and the Constitution. I think that's really because they just had a lot. It was easier for Britain. It cost Britain less. Right. And it cost Western European nations less to say we're going to abolish slavery because in the end, the people passing the laws are in the main not the ones profiting from slavery, whereas in America they were. Right. And it's well, it's that Upton Sinclair line, isn't it? It's very difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding it. And I think there was a lot of that um, in the states. It's a complex issue, of course, but that's that's a sort of a, a summary yep. of how the next seventy years played out. Yeah, and so uh, eighteen oh seven abolition of of the slave trade, and eighteen thirty three is sort of the em- emancipation of the slaves in the UK. Um, fascinatingly. In order to export this view of slavery and, and its evil beyond Britain and into Catholic lands and Muslim lands, uh, there was the, the use of, of the language of this is a crime against humanity, mm. which I, th- I think was a, a very uh, politically wise tactic to sort of say, you know, why, why is slavery you know, wrong. And, and the sort of Muslim sultans in Morocco saying this, we've had this since the time of Adam. Why, why, why would we not have slavery? Yeah. And it, it was politically wise and astute to say, uh, this is a crime against humanity, which is, which is a sort of phrase that has passed down to us in a number of different ways, um, in, including um, as, as sort of the, the crime that um, so Nazis were, you know, yeah. Uh, guilty of these crimes against humanity. Um, But it's another example of things that began in a Christian register in terms of the abolitionists and Mm. people like Alec Ryrie would, would, you know, Mm. absolutely say this, this is a, uh, a Christian movement, Quakers and evangelicals and nonconformists leading, leading the way. But this is a Christian movement that in order to be translated to a global movement has to anonymize its its Christianity. I think in in the way that it does that, we, we are then left with um, an absurdity in terms of crime, a crime against humanity. Because um, if humanity is the guilty party, is humanity also the judge? Is humanity also the law? Is humanity also the advocate? Is And the victim. And the victim. Yeah. Um, this case would get thrown out of court, <laughs> like mm-hmm. if this if this was the, and yet it's it's a it's a 
it's a way of, like with Benjamin Franklin and yes. Sacred and Undeniable, of bringing the standard down, all the way down to our level so that it's uncontestable. Yeah. And yet to do that makes it not self-evident and, and slightly absurd, really. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's an example of ways in which um, profoundly Christian things become universalized and anonymized and then invisible. Yes. So that we now take it for granted. What's interesting is, is about the what now seems so obvious to us, which is the freedom of all people and people are not property. What is so obvious to us morally and is one of our firmest convictions, no yeah. matter whether we're Christian or not, it's so difficult to think ourselves into the, the, the shoes of a Thomas yeah. Jefferson with 600 yeah. slaves. We, we think, well, how, how could he do it? Yeah. But, but it, that just, again, shows how Christianized we've become. It does. I think... Yeah, I think Jefferson is fascinating because he spoke against it and still did it. Yeah. And then I think yeah. there we're going, How is that is hypocrisy the... I mean, it seems obviously hypocritical, but is that the best category? And, and Thomas Kidd's work on this is really fascinating. And it's not mm. quite the same as hypocrisy. It's like a bit more complicated than that. But I think the general thing is not just that we can't understand Jefferson being a hypocrite. It's more that we can't understand anyone wanting to own slaves, even if they weren't hypocritical. It's more... The, how did anybody ever think this was acceptable? Hmm. Um, it's interesting. Do you know when the last nation on earth to abolish slavery happened? Do you know when that? When was the last nation on earth to formally abolish slavery? Is it, it was. It's 1970 or something. It was exactly 200 years after it was abolished in Britain. So in okay. 2007 in Mauritania, okay. which is absolutely wow. extraordinary, I think. Wow. But now, obviously, that's to show that it, ha it, it takes a while for these ideas to spread but it, and, and effectively for them to be imposed from outside on cultures that didn't necessarily want to go there um, by effectively force of personality and at times force of arms and trade embargoes by Western nations. But you're right, they're not remotely so it's not remotely self evident. It hasn't been self evident to most people in history that slavery is unacceptable. And of and it's you've got to be said, and it wasn't wasn't self evident to most Christians that slavery was unacceptable for a lot of that period as well. But it is the it's the moral logic of Christianity running amok and then getting forgotten that it is ultimately in the moral logic of Christianity. But the fact that now somebody was to say, I th I'd like to make the case for slavery in the public square would be so unthinkable, not just in Britain, mm. but in countries that are not very, have never actually been Christianized countries, shows how universalized that idea has become. And so I th it, there are many other examples we have. And of course, they all come through, as we've touched on previously, in the language of human rights or the idea that there is, you can have a crime against humanity. You can have a right of being a human. You often see posters up now saying every child has a right to, to play as well as to eat and to survive. Mm -hmm. and, all. and you sort of think even the, the way in which human beings have abstract things that must be true of them as humans and abstract things that must not ever be done to them because they're humans derive from Christian assumptions not just about humans but about God and about Jesus and so yeah I mean we've touched on this a number of times from different angles but I do think the abolition of slavery and it and the and human rights discourse and even just mm -hmm. when people came in the years after the second world war to say how do we best describe why what has happened in Germany and and yeah. elsewhere yeah. is so utterly unthinkable yeah without playing the god card right well we will need to transpose the same moral fervor into a secular key hence the for me the category of protestant paganism you yeah. you're trying to we we, we our, our worldview our, our metaphysics is pagan yeah but actually our moral fervor and logic is ultimately yeah. protestant and at least christian so we're going to fuse the two together and come up with the un declaration of human rights and many other things which of course are not ultimately grounded in the materialist premises that the people who wrote them yes mainly hold it yes Held. Yes, held. Yeah. Yes. Let's. Okay. I've got. I'll, I'll, I've got a question to ask now. Actually, and and 
it's a question that also relates to UN Declaration of Human Rights and, and, and where we get to in the 20th century. But um, what do we do with conscience? Um, what do we do with the sense that um, the Bible speaks of this thing? It's, it's not a, an uh, unerring moral compass in our breast that always points towards due north. And it can't be that because um, there are slaveholders who had no qualms about holding slaves. And when they write their diaries, you don't get the sense that they're sort of internally wrestling mm. with this thing and that they've got Jiminy Cricket on their shoulder saying, you can't do this, yeah. you're a monster. Like, they're, they're not, <laughs> they, they don't seem to be, and, and you go back to the ancient world and, and there, are, there are people thinking that the gladiatorial games were vulgar, but, mm. but like- But not in, morally abhorrent. Immoral, yeah. like in that sense, you've got that famous letter from a soldier in the first century- um, writing to his wife, and he's like, I know that you're pregnant. If uh, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, kill it. Mm. Uh, I'll be home by spring and yeah. say hello to Alexander. Like, yeah. like yeah. It's kind of... Um, and you don't get that sense that people are, are actually churned up by mm. this moral struggle with the evil of infanticide mm. or blood sports or slavery. Mm. So what is the conscience then? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so I think... I think you're right that there is no that the, the moral law or the sense that we are violating it is clearly not the same. In, it's obviously not the same in all cultures. That morality is understood in such radically different ways. Just as in our own culture, many people would say there's absolutely nothing morally unacceptable about abortion or whatever. It, people have things that other cultures go. How on earth can you think that? And, and our cultures go, well, you know. Um, but I think there, nevertheless, I think the, the sense of conscience, which is obviously heavily fashioned by the culture we're in, but conscience functions as a as a prompt from a part of our soul or a part of our brain, you might say, to another part of our brain to say, you're, it's often you're not living up to the standard that you yourself hold. That's mm. what the conscience does. I think mm. it, it doesn't it doesn't provide an abstracted code of laws. It's more like the the prosecuting lawyer or the judge who goes by your own standards mm, you have mm, fallen short mm. um and so i think it, it's it, rather than the lawmaker if you see what i mean it plays yes. the part in a sense i guess of the judiciary rather than the legislative it doesn't make right. the laws it, mm. the laws are given to it largely by the culture it's in but what it does is to apply the law to the soul of the person and say oi glenn mm -hmm. you said that and you don't actually think that's right mm-hmm Rather than I'm from nowhere going to give you a sort of, uh, a, you know, on tablets of stone, here's the law that you've broken. Now, I do think that God can speak anyway through the individual and say that is wrong, even though your culture thinks it's right. And there's clearly abolitionism is a good example where there are people in a culture where everybody does think it's OK, mm -hmm. who nevertheless take huge personal risk to confront and challenge and say, no, no, this is not OK. And I'm going to lose an awful lot on saying that it isn't. Yes. But I think. That that can't be all conscience is. So right. I think conscience. Yeah, yeah. If I yeah. use that analogy, yeah, I think yeah. it is. It's the application of and the taking of the law and applying it to the the soul of the person who knows they've broken it. Yes. And that I think, if you go to your Romans one and two, that's what's going on. Is that you condemn yeah. these things and you yourself do the same things. That's how the conscience is going. Oi, you, yes. because you're guilty by your own moral yes. standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's informed by revelation, and it can go wrong, and it errs, and we can sear. We can have our conscience and seared, and yeah. we can contort them. And, and yes, so it's not this, it's not this unerring sense um, that everyone living through slavery was always thinking this is wrong, but we're, we're making a lot of money, so let's do it. Yes. It's it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, okay, so 
we're through into the 19th century, kind of the century of progress. Yeah. And we've got some great... Um, in scare quotes. In scare <laughs> quotes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess we've, we've got the idea of people like Hegel, who would say we've got historical progress in, in the dialectic and, and history kind of goes on like that. Darwin famously in sort of biological yeah. process. Uh, Freud had a sort of a, an idea of, of cultural and spiritual and psychological kind of progress and that, that kind of thing. Um, but you say Marx, I think Marx, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, which but, is more of an economic take on it, and again applying Hegel in into the the concept of yeah of into matter really. And do you would would you say that what is making those narratives of progress very plausible is all sorts of material circumstances going absolutely. on? Absolutely, you know. So I th- and this is this is the thing that if you're if the world you're in, I mean, you you see this with so many things. You, you see that the way that the environment and the material conditions of humanity. And sometimes the environment, literally, in the sense of we've touched on in previous episodes of geography and weather and those sorts of things. But certainly, if you got if you if your machinery is doubling in its power every ten or fifteen years, mm. it only needs that for a few decades, and the dramatic expansion of material wealth. We talked about industrialization and enrichment, but those two prongs shape the the frame, the moral frame, the way that people think we are clearly getting better. It's quite hard to deny that we're getting better. We're getting more educated and we're getting, and there becomes a self-fulfilling, almost like a, a reinforcing feedback loop yeah. where the more money you have, the more you can give people time and space to research things and discover things, which then leads, and it did at least for about 100, 150 years. I think you'd, you'd probably say there's an S-curve. It's, it's probably mm-hmm. slowed in many areas mm-hmm. in the last 50 or 70 years, but just... You take the obvious thing, what would a person alive in 1800 have experienced in their day-to-day life that by the age, by their children or grandchildren's time would have been unthinkably backward? Mm-hmm. And you realise, of course, the, the world these people live in is conditioning them economically in terms of their levels of wealth, their machinery, their comfort, their healthcare, mm-hmm. their life expectancy, mm-hmm. uh, their earnings, the amount of land they have, how productive it is, so many different things. Whereas it's actually quite difficult for somebody who is alive in, who has lived from 1810 to 1865 or whatever, not to think, gosh, humanity's making enormous strides in the right direction mm. and it's all upwards towards the light. Now, I think what's interesting is that the language, as we've touched on previously, the language of being in a world now of light predates that economic dramatic change, mm. the, the Enlightenment really. But what happens is if you've got a narrative that goes, we are, as we've seen in previous episodes, we are light and they were darkness. And since turning the lights on, we have dramatically enhanced, we've doubled our life expectancy or very nearly. Hmm. And, uh, and our, you know, our wealth is experiencing, exp- is exploding exponentially. Then, of course, you do have, a, 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 and at the same time, European wars hmm. um, on the continent of Europe pretty much, you know, fizzle out for the best part of a, a century. And if you have that, you start thinking, oh, well, actually, peace. I mean, I know, obviously, we've got a few things to cough about and splutter about. You know, mm-hmm. I know we're not quite at peace over there in this mm-hmm. land or whatever, in mm-hmm. you know, China or in Crimea or whatever. But generally, we've got increased more. We start to believe we're morally progressing. Which the yeah. Victorians in Britain clearly right. did. You know, the great American philanthropists and that, you know, we, we've made mm-hmm. a lot of money, but now we're going to invest it for the good of humanity. Couple that with educational progress, material industrial progress. You think it's it would actually be almost impossible to imagine how they wouldn't have concluded. Mm-hmm. We're just getting better and better. Um, and people then will, you know, the end point of that, it hits the buffers, depending on how you count, you know, some, but in the years immediately before, or maybe during World War One, people start going, I think we may, <laughs> we may have omitted some important things. But in Europe, at least, and I'm speaking very much from a northern, you know, the, the weirder world we've been considering, mm-hmm. you do have a, a period of 100 years where you think, 
it's very yes if you were removed from the dark side so you're removed from the rapaciousness and the the greed and the resource extraction and the death and the colonialism and the slavery if you can't see that you're just living in a world where mm. you know you of course you have poor people but even those poor people are themselves over a generation getting wealthier yeah. and maybe more educated and maybe yeah. more better manners and cleaner and, all and you're passing reforms the whole you're time in, the whole in time and, and, yeah. so now yeah. children can't go up chimneys and yeah. now yeah. of course you, you do need to provide more for the poor laws and and you end up with you it's you can see how people concluded yeah, yeah. this is going to keep going in this direction and you've uh, turned that corner from slavery to abolition and yeah. oh, oh my goodness you know yeah. and, what a, and many many equivalents so and yeah, so which is why I think those years immediately around into you know, sort of the 1910s, you know, mm. Titanic is often quoted as sort of almost like a, but more of a parable than as a genuine sense of, yeah. oh gosh, yeah. we've, we've completely messed this up. But World War I is a horrible shock, as it would have been to any generation. But I think particularly there, because the methods, the, the, the price of European progress that until then was being paid in the Belgian Congo in making rubber or right, being in, right. in Southwest Africa or whatever, and all over the world, sugar plantations. But they couldn't see it and they weren't experiencing right. it. But now they can and they're saying, wow, these machines we've developed... Well, the stat I quote in the book, you know, for every mile of railway track in the world today, there are 100 AK-47s. Mm. And so we're see, we, you start to see the other side of the technology you've created. Right. Um, and obviously, classically, to Hiroshima and beyond. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it, that, that story comes to a shuddering halt yeah. in, in the, in the, really in the First World War and the years on the side yeah. of it. So the, the century progress gives way to the murder century, yeah. 20th century, in which more people died violently than in all the other centuries of human history put together. Yeah. Um, quite, a, quite a shocking thing. And in one sense, I think with World War II, we've, we've sort of, now had our successor mythology in terms of a, a grand battle with evil. Yeah. Um, and Tom Holland is always always making the point that, you know, now that we've had the Nazis, we don't need demons anymore. Yeah. Now that we've got Hitler, we don't need the devil. Now that we've had Auschwitz, we don't need hell. Yeah. And, and there's a certain telling of the story in which the Atlantic Charter is signed in 1941 between Roosevelt and Churchill, and, and it's let's go to war against this evil in the name of human rights. Mm. And, you know, they're even sort of explicitly kind of saying that. And it turns out that to be on the other side of human rights is to be a Nazi. And mm. and in a, in a sense, I think, since World War II, um, we haven't exactly had a pole star to, to guide ourselves by because, you know, absent Christian faith, that, that, that is not our transcendent value. But we do have a pit now to avoid. Yeah. And that pit is called Auschwitz. Yeah. And so we don't know what's up, but we do know what's down. Yeah. And what's fascinating about the UN Declaration of Human Rights is like the preamble is very heavy on. Um, we've seen the barbarism of what happens when we do not affirm human rights. Yeah. And therefore we express our faith in, in human yes. rights. And again, it's not it's not so much. And, and it uses the words, you know, they use the words of crimes against humanity when they're in Nuremberg trials and they're convicting the Nazis. And, and again, it's, it's bringing those standards right down to the very human level. Because otherwise, you don't want to be a Nazi, do you? And, you know, Alec Ryrie, who I've you know, just mentioned, just, just sort of said, you know, our whole moral settle settlement yeah. has just become don't be a Nazi. And yeah. there's a reason why Godwin's rule is a rule yeah. on, in online discussion. You know, it's the probability that a comparison to Hitler will be made by the end of an Internet thread, you know, approaches yeah. one. Because, um, you know, it's, it's not so much what would Jesus do and do Jesus anymore. 
it's what would Hitler do and, and do, do the opposite. Do the opposite. Um, how much of our moral imagination do you think has been shaped by by that as a kind of a as our new mythology? Yeah, I think it's I think it's hard to think of any area of moral reflection that hasn't been. So in that sense, it, it is. I, I entirely agree with that. I'd never. I was Alec Rory where I first. Uh, came across that idea that that was the sort of that the, the most significant moral figure mm. for the 21st century person is not Jesus but Adolf Hitler, yeah. and and he and that's literally is the Antichrist. He, he's the no, I mean not right. in the theologic Christian theological sense, although I guess that that too in one John sense, but more as a this is how you define your morality. You look at that and then do the opposite, and and even for the in the sense of you know the the way in which we think about you, some of the moral conflicts and anxieties today. I'll say so Hitler. Hitler, you know, persecuted and mass murdered Jews. So how then do we think through the rights, not just of Jewish people, but of any oppressed people and right. any on the grounds of effectively racism? Whereas we'd say, well, Stalin killed an awful lot of his own people, but because it wasn't motivated by racism, it was motivated by the desire to say, mm. no, everyone's equal, animal yeah. farm style. It's not as morally repugnant to us, even though right. actually the death count might even it's have been higher, higher in yeah. communist Russia than yeah. it was, and probably was, than it was in Nazi Germany. Similarly with um, you know sexuality, and similarly with other kinds of minorities, you say actually the last eighty years have seen the the people who were being attacked by Hitler often take center stage in moral reasoning, and not in an uh, not in an entirely one sided way either. In mm. obviously, in particularly. You know, with the history of Israel, it's become much. You get the left now very confused as to what to do with the nation of Israel, uh, mm. in in various ways because the sort of the the narrative is anybody who's a victim now needs to be elevated. But then, well, what happens if you've got what? How do you trade those two rights against each other? Mm. But I think the moral grammar of Western reflection, without the, sort of effect, is still fundamentally a Christian take on morality. Mm. You know, mm. we, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You, that's the shape of it. Yep. But how do you tell who's on which side? And the answer is well, mm. you know. Know, you know, little men with moustaches who want to kill everybody are on this side, and anyone yep. who persecutes the same group of people are also with him. And mm. then these are the these are the victims, and and I and then of course that then gets run through the filters of sexuality and race and most other culturally hot potato issues today, and that charge gets thrown every which way. And I don't think that's simply a, a laziness in debates. It clearly is. It's a conversation stopper. It's a way of avoiding difficult conversations. But ultimately, it does reflect that that is the sort of moral centre of gravity or the opposite, whatever the centre of gravity, like a magnet that pushes you away. That sort yes, of thing. repulsive, yeah. Um, and, and I don't know, I think without a more explicit theism or a more explicit appeal to Jesus, it's difficult to know how you would end up with a positive account of morality. So what we effectively have is the negative account of morality flipped. Yes. And yeah. and I think that that is a large part of how, yeah, most of the people who I've interacted with on social media in the last 10 years, that's the, even if they've been very mature about it, that's still mm -hmm. ultimately how the moral frame is being motivated and where a lot of the animus and force behind those convictions comes from. Yes. And it also explains why, you know, if you're having a conversation about, oh, where do you think human rights come from? What's fascinating is a number of times I've had conversations like that, and literally the comeback has been, "Why are you questioning human rights?" Yeah. Like, no, I just I just want to yeah. intellectually yeah. kind of get what sort get, of a Nazi are you, Glenn? Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what are you? Yeah, a Nazi. Um, and 
And what's fascinating is that that kind of is the preamble to the UN Declaration of yeah. Human Rights. Like, yeah. you don't want to be a Nazi, do you? Okay, yeah. well, I guess, you know, we, we better go for, for this bulwark against the baddies. But, yeah, just simply to invert the Antichrist is not to revert you back to Christ, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, unfortunately. Um, and I think, it's just to riff on that, I think one of the... The, it's fascinating. We talked a little bit about the, even sometimes the differences between America and Western Europe on the speed of cultural change here. The sort of rapid mm. rapidity of post Christendom in America being sort of a lot has happened in the last ten years, which has been happening in Europe since the 1950s or whatever. Um, and you know, various things of you know dechurching or of just as you know uh, uh, the toxicity or apparent toxicity mm. of Christian truth claims in the public square and so on. But one of the reasons is, is because I think in America the the, nature, the way the Cold War played out meant that you actually had two enemies. And so you're so we're here, we're a liberal democracy. We've got the fascists there, we've also got the communists there, and they are also the baddies. In Western Europe, right. although you are still involved in the Cold War, you, the, the moral the moral opposition to fascism was immeasurably greater than it was in communism. And what's mm-hmm. happened since the end of the Cold War is that obviously communism has faded to a sort of, you know, it feels arcane almost to talk about that. And it's mm-hmm. a bit more of a footnote. And so I think one of the things that almost preserved American sort of apparent nominal Christianity for longer was, and in all sorts of ways, was the Cold War. Because but then when you take that out, you realise in, in my adult lifetime how quickly it looks like America's moved. It's almost was being held with something that looked more Christian yeah. rather than simply anti-fascist for a lot right. longer because right. of the desire to fend off equal and opposing opposites. Yes. Um in, in the form of fascism and communism. Whereas in the in Britain, even though people were still, you know, we obviously don't want to be like the communists, but the things that people you know were mainstream in political discourse in the 60s and 70s in britain yes were a lot closer to it wasn't anything like as reprehensible to be a communist in the 1970s as to be a, an avowed fascist in in a country like britain whereas in, a, in america they were almost seen as morally equivalent and i think that's made quite a big difference to the speed of post-christendom suddenly cascading upon a lot of our american brothers and sisters yes. quite quickly yes that in britain has just taken yeah. Eight or nine decades. Yes, because, I mean, church attendance percentage-wise peaked in America in the 1950s, whereas yeah. in Britain it was in the 1850s. Yeah. And we were, we were sort I didn't of, know that. That's very interesting. We were sort of like 50% in, in, in the 1851 um, uh, census in, in Britain. And in America, because of the Cold War threat, there, there is this massive, well, we, we need to, in God we trust, which yeah. went on the money in yeah. the 1950s. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't on the money before then. And so Christianity was kind of more of a bulwark against yeah. communism and that sort of thing. But other things happening in the 50s and 60s, I guess we've got, we've got two, I mean, lots of things going on, but, but there's a civil rights movement and there's a sexual revolution going on. And what's interesting to me is the way in which those two things kind of get um, unified in our thinking mm. when actually they're quite they're quite separate movements happening for quite separate reasons they are. Um, yeah help us help us with what's going on with the civil rights movement and and the sexual revolution so I well I think so the civil rights movement is yeah, obviously there is a global dimension to it but when we talk about the civil rights movement we're almost exclusively talking about the the US in, in the sense of what we mean by it and all the key figures for us and so whether yeah. we think whether Malcolm X Martin Luther King and so on and uh and that, and that, of course, is is going back really to the legacy of, of slavery and well before that, and all that's happened since. As I said, the the, the post slave, you know, when you, you you would think in the eighteen sixties we've settled the issue, we now don't have slaves anymore, but Reconstruction very quickly 
you know, loses loses its original ideal and and turns into another means of keeping African Americans as second class citizens and worse for the next eighty odd years, or oh, hundred years. Um, and so, civil rights is very much motivated by the redress of that, and mm. and obviously is very much as we, to continue with our theme is very much an, an explicitly Christian movement, not just in its moral logic, as we said, but also in its you know a lot of its most foremost spokespersons and and really the appeal and even rhetoric and cadences of the civil rights movement are yeah Baptist preachers and the like. Whereas the sexual revolution was had a very different sort of prehistory. In some ways, it roots from a not a dissimilar time span. I think you you still have a, the origins of both of these things: abolitionism and what I call the first sexual revolution bubbling away in the sort of late 18th century and then having a, a sort of surge forward in 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 the west sort of through the late 19th and early 20th century and then obviously come into legal fruition in the 1960s and 70s and then a more cultural normalization for everybody in really in the last 10 or 20 years in in many ways um because the sexual revolution still, most people were in the 1960s were still not going, okay, there's some people over there practicing free love and all this, but that, that isn't how most ordinary folk were living, and, right. and in many ways still isn't, but people are, hmm. the mainstream are always more conservative than the people on the front page of the papers. But obviously the, the logic was very different, and it was, it was about, primary, you know, the, at, at best the, the liberation of women and about the equalization of, of rights, but the, the journey there was... Uh, was it was motivated by different different abuses. It was far more stop start over the hundred and fifty years, and it was much more global, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that the similar sort of trajectories were taking place all over the world. Whereas in the civil rights context, it was much the the, the racial dynamics of the United States in particular gave not just force to the as I say to the moral imperative to do it, but even to the particular ways in which it played out and the policy implications sexual revolution was more of a global or at least western global phenomenon that is now obviously in many ways has been exported globally to Mm -hmm. most parts of the world and so i think there's a number of important differences that even though we would again with a very flat christian telling you know christian influence telling the story there were these people who were being victimized by these people the white patriarchy was oppressing everybody and one by one they all rose up and said no we're going to have that's the way they can sort of look like the same Sexual right. minorities, women, right. African Americans, whoever it was, it looks like the same kind of dynamics at work in each in each case. Um, but of course, that's not the way in which those the laws that were passed and the implications were, were not like that at all. W- women mm-hmm. legal equality for women in something like voting came a lot earlier mm. than it did in civil rights. But actually, the sort of pay differential might still exist today, and so you, it's a much more protracted process mm. with very different causes behind it. Yeah, and there's. A great difficulty when we when we conflate those two things. At at that point, we we just say, well, they're both. If they're both the same story, then there is a, a domineering culture. Let's say white slave owners and blacks who are being enslaved, um, and therefore liberation looks like this. And then you just transpose the story into the sexual revolution, and you've got heteronormativity up here yeah. and everybody else. Yeah. And we and we need to do the the same kind of liberation. Um, and I guess in in modern cultures, it it tends to be that those on the progressive left are a okay on slave on on civil rights issues and race issues and. And they they want to see you know further progress as they would they would see it in in liberation of sexual minorities and that kind of thing, and those on the right take the opposite view yeah. on both those things, and yet it's it's a far more complicated thing than that. Hmm. It is, and and I think and 
again, there's a, there's plenty of people who sort of cross party lines all the time, and are almost yeah. they just get sort of erased from the narrative. But if you're a you know, as of course, an awful lot of like an awful lot of people in my church would be, who'd be saying, you know, my my church would be sort of seventy percent black, and um, from people, many about a third of the church from Africa, about a third of the church from the Caribbean or black British background, a third of the church from elsewhere in the world. A bunch of us mm-hmm. are white as well, of course. Um, but in a setting like that, where people would say, actually, on sexual ethics, mm-hmm. I would appear to be very conservative relative mm-hmm. to the progressive narrative of today. But on racial issues, I'd be seem to be very progressive, and, and mm-hmm. would seem to be sort of hyper woke in some people's speech. You know, uh, you know on one on one issue, and extremely retrograde on another issue. Mm. So I might simultaneously be be regarded as woke or a bigot, depending on what I was talking about. Mm. Now, that's not unique to my church at all. It's probably represented in every church of every person listening to this. Mm. But it's very prominent in, our, in my community in Southeast London. And so you, you look at that from the outside and go, well, that. That just shows that the narrative is clearly being told in a in a very misleading way, in such a way as to really appropriate and swallow up into the Borg everybody who is in any way saying historical injustices have been committed by Group A against Group B, therefore we need to advance the rights of Group B, which actually on the face of it is a perfectly legitimate policy platform. It's what mm-hmm. a lot of people do. But of course, the issue is yeah, but a lot of the rights of people in Group B um, might exist for different reasons and might be in conflict with one another. A lot of the people in Group A were had very different motivations, very different prehistories. And also a lot of people in Group B might say, well, that, actually, that is not a rights issue. That's an issue mm-hmm. of sin and righteousness. That's an issue of wisdom and prudence. That's, in mm-hmm. fact, there's another victim here, an unborn right. child, for instance, which you haven't right. considered in that analysis, right. and so on. So um, there's, there's, it's so much more complicated than it has been made to look. Yes. Um, but I think, again, there's sort of the, the quite... It is quite Christian, and it's sort of there's the the dark side, the light side. It's, it's quite morally black and white. It's just that what is black and what is white has been transformed and subtly adjusted in the course yeah. of the last couple of generations. And it has enormous rhetorical power because at the end, all of us want to believe that we would have been on the right side at Selma um, mm-hmm. or Soweto or wherever it was. We want mm-hmm. to be. I would have been marching with mm-hmm. Martin Luther King. I wouldn't have been firing water cannons in their faces. But today there's there's no Selma. Today the equivalent of that is Stonewall, or the equivalent right. of that is trans rights, or whatever. And so, I, but I want to make sure I'm on the right side of that. Yeah. But of course, that narrative itself is a very is a, a historical slice, which mm. sounds like sounds plausible today because of our immediate history. But really, for much of history, and you would think even today, does not reflect the complexities of most of those issues. And the tables turn. And you see that with J.K. Rowling. You see that with, we've talked about, I know both really enjoyed Louise Perry's work. Many examples we would say, hang on a second, there's mm. a lot of debate about who's actually being victimised by who here. Um, right. And we'd like it to be, we've got Bull Connor over here and Martin Luther King over there on every yeah. issue. And it's not remotely like that in many of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's uh, the fascinating impulse to make goodies and baddies, which I guess we all have, yes. has been particularly effective in that kind of moral discourse. Yeah, and when you think about some of the corners that we have turned and that we would look back over hundreds of years and, and see a positive corner has been turned on something like blood sports and gladiatorial yeah. games, I mean, that that's a very conservative thing, you know. Yeah. Um, Telemachus, this this monk, sort of goes into the arena and he tries to stop these two gladiators 
doing their thing and he yeah. gets stoned to death by yeah. the crowd. It's not yeah. a popular thing. No, sure. Progressivism is <laughs> often what we would now... So, progressive, so um, teetotalism, you know, anti-prohibitionism right. was a very progressive movement. Eugenics yeah. at the time is like abhorrent to us now, but was all the, all the best progressive minds okay. of the day were into yes. it. Yes. Um, opposing vaccinations for all sorts of reasons yep. was a very progressive thing to yep. do. Even Scientific in, racism. And, yeah, yeah, like yeah. even at the start of the COVID pandemic, it's fascinating. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Know, the conservatives and the progressives in February or January 2020 were opposite sides of the lockdown masking vaccines all those a yeah, lot of those debates yeah. than you would think they were if you looked at it from 2023 yeah. and shutting down borders yeah. kind of flipped exactly yeah of course it, that, that was a very repressive measure and now it's a sort of no this is a that's what all the yeah. all, that's what new zealand's do you know that's yeah, yeah. So, my body so my choice ways. yeah became a slogan of the left you know as as regards you know abortion but a slogan of the right yeah, as, re as regards uh, yeah. vaccinations you know <laughs> and so it, it, again this sort of the idea that there is an i know every i trust everyone knows that the inexorable march of history in one direction <laughs> is hopelessly shallow but people do still talk about that and the fact that the right. phrase right side of history is ever used shows that there is an appealing and actually a very Christian <laughs> influenced moral logic to the idea that yes. history is heading in the right direction. Um, and of course, that's just not how most of the issues we've touched on play out at all. Yeah. And, and especially because you look back at the banning of blood sports, for instance, so that sounds like a very conservative movement. And, you know, outlawing infanticide, again, sounds like a restriction from one sense. But isn't it the liberation of the children? Like, on, on what side is that a progressive or a conservative yeah. cause? Abolition of slavery seems like a, a very progressive cause, I guess, and you, you just can't pin down like on which on which side of our political spectra would mm. those causes be be placed? Yeah, over over history, and I guess there's there's no kind of safe place on that on those political spectrums. No, there right? isn't, and I think one. If I can, sorry, jump back to eight, the 18th century for a moment. I think mm. one of the things driving that is the French Revolution, which we haven't really talked about, mm. where you do have, which is where our language of left and right comes from, the right. left and right yep. banks of the Seine, and, and where I think you do have a a clear split uh, within the in the early, in the you know the French Revolution, depending on how you count, but you know the the intense phase lasts four or five years, and quite quickly evolves from a sort of quite moderate middle class balanced let's you know just just put it some checks and balance we'll keep a king we're obviously you know, through something that would have looked actually more like what the americans did and what even what the british did under cromwell mm -hmm. but quite quickly turned into a much more radical self-immolating movement and i think the the sense of what left and right is and how radical how how opposed you are to the old right there's actually almost a chronological logic to what the French Revolution has bequeathed to us that effectively, if I said to you, you know, you've got left and right and you've got looking forwards and looking backwards, you would immediately know that left belonged to looking forwards and right belonged to looking backwards, even if you thought there's no reason why that would obviously be true. You know that's yeah. what those terms yeah. are intended to mean. And right side of history is clearly a forward-looking, this is how the world will be. Right side of history is the left. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of, yeah. of course it is. Um, I mean, no one on the right says you're not going to be on the right side of history unless they're doing it as a, to troll people mm -hmm. on the left. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really the, the sort of almost chronological logic, mm -hmm. inelegant phrase, of the French Revolution being imposed and, and still using language of left, right, even though that language now is... Is, is really sort of dis disintegrates a little bit really is like, yes. do left and right really argue that much about the size of the state does anybody Taxation. Really think, yeah <laughs> the, the issues about which people are left and right now seem very different from what they would have been but i think that's partly where that comes from mm. um because there was really a, there was an ancien regime and there is was also a progressive new world we're going to bring in the new thing and we're going to 
desecrate the temples and replace it with the Temple of Reason and Notre Dame and all that sort of is, is now going to be a place to come and gather and worship the brilliance of the human spirit and how much we know. And even though that quickly blew itself out and turned into Napoleon, it still bequeathed a sense that there are people in the world who look forward mm -hmm. and who want justice and who are prepared to overthrow and kill, chop people's heads off if they get in the way of it. Yeah. And that, that terminates in a sort of communism kind of direction. And then you've got people who look backwards, which obviously want to preserve and nostalgia and keep all the old things and keep the, down, the, the nasty downtrodden people as downtrodden as can be so that we can retain our privilege. And that yeah. would, in the modern mind, put, terminate in fascism. And I think that that framing still hovers in the back of our mind, even though we know right. that Labour and Conservative or Republican Democrat isn't really about the same issue at all. Right. And at, certainly at the elite level, at the journalistic level, in terms of media, um, we sort of lean left on these things because we don't want to be Hitler. We, yeah. we don't want to go the, the, the fascistic route. And we're, we're kind of convinced that... Yeah, bloodshed in the name of a classless paradise is preferable yeah. somehow to bloodshed in yeah. the name of racial purity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that idea of progress... But you go to the Magnificat. You know, he's okay. throwing down the mighty from their seat, he's yeah. exalted the humble right. and meek. You think that sounds... If that's what you had, if you built a moral system based right. on that, you would right. be much closer to you know communist russia than nazi germany clearly i mean they're both yes. bad but yes. but so i do think it that has got very deep yeah christian roots christian roots um and so there and there is a, a notion of progress in the bible i mean where did martin luther king jr get his idea that the arc yeah. of history is long but it bends towards justice well he got it from theodore parker who was a christian preacher who got it from the prophets you know essentially yeah. and, and got it from the, the fact of resurrection through the cross out we come into into something that because we've gone down into that depth actually there's a future that can be brighter than than, than yesterday was but that's a very different arc of yes. the moral universe. That's, yes, it is. That's down and then up. Yes. And I think where the sort of the 19th century kind of idea of progress that, that sort of filters through today is it's very much like the rainbow arc that we, yeah. can, we can soar off into the distance and there's a pot of gold at the end of it. And someone like a Martin Luther King Jr. believed in, in the arc that went in the other way. Yeah. And in a sense, he kind of embodied his own message yeah, because, you know, I may not get yeah. there with you, yeah. he says the night before he dies. And, and then martyred if you like yes. um in in the case of that so christians do believe in a kind of progress but but a we do believe in a pole star that is above the party yes. <laughs> because it's very easy for the party to say we're heading in this direction it's the direction of historical inevitability yeah. well it says who well it says the party right yeah. we, we do have a pole star but we also have a path don't we yeah. that that is not um it's not the great leap forward, as Chairman Mao had, in which tens of millions of people died in the 1950s, his, you know, which, which should make us forever dubious of anyone's claims to progress. But, but I guess there is progress, but the way of progress is the way down and then up, the way of sacrificial love, the way, the way of service, mm. the way of, yeah. of, of, of suffering for death. the other, yeah. the way of death. And that's what, that's what we're called to as, as Christians. Um, let's finish with a question... Okay, we've we've talked about left and right and progressive and conservative and all that kind of stuff. Is this just a call for us all to be centrist dads? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boring, boring. You know, you know, le slightly left of center, slightly right of center. You know, on, on the political no, spectrum. Uh, no, it absolutely isn't, because I think I think moderates often end up with the worst of 
all worlds on a lot of these issues, actually. I don't want to be moderate on slavery. Right. I don't want to be moderate on abortion. I don't want to be right. moderate on, you know, whatever kind of most moral issues. There are a handful of issues, I expect, where I would find myself in the middle and yeah. um, and many listeners w- wouldn't be the same issues but might find it in themselves in the middle on other issues. But no, I don't think you want to be in the middle of any other... The, one of the problems with saying I will perpetually try and be in the middle is that you end up simply being yanked around by whoever's the most extreme person. And this, mm. I, I was introduced, whatever, five years ago to the concept of the Overton window, but the idea, many people may, may well know it, but the idea that you sort of put polite discourse in a culture exists within a window of opinion and that what you want to do if you want to change opinion is to make a, a, a statement that's outside the current bounds and it'll pull the window towards you even if no one believes what you're saying the whole discourse will move the center of gravity you end up being the victim of that all the time and people make a lunatic statement on an issue and you have to move with them because the middle has changed that's not why I'm not calling for that I'm sure you're not yeah. I think actually what it's more to say is that what Christianity does is provide a, a radical critique of both extremes and that it does so from convictions that sometimes both extremes are trying to draw from but mm-hmm. have not got the the theological or metaphysical physical grounds to make yep. and so you find yourself simultaneously at the far left and the far right and everywhere in between mm. um and so, as, as I said, I use the example of, of you know, working in our local church where I'd say, actually, in, in Britain today, and it might not be the same in every nation, but in Britain today, the, the center of gravity of my church would seem to be well, well on the left on, an, on issues of race, racial justice, would seem to be well on the right on issues of sexual ethics and pro-life, would seem to be various places in between on all sorts of other public policy issues. And that's not that you're then trying to find yourself in the middle. It's that you're saying, no, I, I'm going to provide a radical biblical gospel-shaped critique of all the principalities and powers mm-hmm. sometimes are trying to take us back to the past sometimes they're trying to take us to a completely unthinkable and un, you know unpreferable future and all of those powers need to be exposed for what they are and what they're trying to achieve and yeah. um but that will sometimes make you sound like a very right-wing person sometimes make you sound like a very left-wing person and hopefully often people say i don't really know what that is <laughs> that's a weird yeah. combination of yeah. so you don't you're opposed to war in that sense and you're opposed to that sort of Injustice, but you also seem to be very pro the rights of that group who are not part of the popular discourse. I don't, I can't quite place that on the map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, yeah, yeah, like we've touched on before, you are in favour. It would seem you're prepared to live with martyrdom and celibacy and right. charity and pity right. and humility and these things which don't really fit onto. Right. the left-right spectrum or whatever spectrum you care to mention. So, no, I don't think we're moderates in that sense. I think we're just yeah. going to provide a, a radical challenge to all of the all of the powers, whatever they may be pushing us to do. Yeah, we're radicals. And if we sound like conservatives at some point, it's because we're trying to radically conserve the Jesus revolution. And if we sound yeah. like progressives in, in one sense, it's it's because we want to do this other thing of death and resurrection. And, and yeah, it's a radical challenge to the... The political discourse of this world, I, I, I just think of Abraham, you know, back in Genesis chapter 14, he is, it's the first time that the word Hebrew is mentioned, and it means one from beyond, and, you know, perhaps it means one from beyond the river, and it's what the foreigners called the Israelites, they are, they are from out of this world, <laughs> and there is Abraham living in tents while the rest of the culture is at war, and it's, yeah. it's this very, he doesn't, he doesn't fit, and sometimes he picks offside in the in the wars of his day and sometimes he joins with the king of Sodom against the four kings and and he he kind of enters the fray in that sense but at the end of the day you know he is building the household of faith mm. and he is from out of this world and no one can kind of pin him down so 
that's uh, that's what Christians are, I guess. Right, well, we better draw stumps there, which is a cricket analogy for those who don't know about cricket. Uh, if you don't know about cricket, I'm very sorry for you. Um, but if you don't know about cricket, you probably haven't lived. You know. So I think you're probably fine and not listening to this in the first place. <laughs> Christianity is obviously uh, the, the cause of cricket. and uh... It is. And I, yeah, I often think of that scene at the end of the beach where Patterson Joseph stands there on the beach and says, these are the two twin pillars on which Western civilization is built, Christianity and cricket. And so we spent a lot of time talking about one of them. And it's just what we got. Anyway, sorry, just you as have well, to give a the formal outro to this episode. Yeah, actually. no, absolutely. And uh, so if you have enjoyed this episode, please do give us a share on social media and give us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. But Andrew Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Glenn.